When you're talking about living organization, empowered front lines, and, and leaders with the presence, it's important to talk about also how do we give employees more voice and agency to, to drive this whole transformation, to decide how how the future Jidan could be made human, um, could be made more human at the same time as, as they help organization win, win in the marketplace. A lot of organizations, quite a lot of people have already been, been working away from the office. Um, and have already been working remote from other folks. Uh, and yet, actually, they've been really poorly served up to this point. Um, so it's really interesting. It's only when, when us white-collar workers are suddenly disrupted that maybe we gain a greater empathy for some of the you know, frontline and field workers, the blue-collar workers. So today's episode is all around the Decade of Courage Manifesto, which is something that I and my colleagues in DWG wrote a few months into COVID. It's got 12 action points for essential workplace transformation. Uh, you can download that off the DWG website, and it's also in the uh, in the show notes. And I got on two guests, James Robertson, specialist in digital workplace intranets, based in Australia, and Manisha Singh, who's one of the senior digital leaders at Schneider Electric, based in the US, mainly because they both commented very favorably on the manifesto when I released it. And I was really chuffed about that. And I thought it'd be great to have a conversation with them. James from, if you like, a kind of expert consultant angle, and Manisha from a practitioner side as well. And I think... What came through to me was that there is a strong and precious future for human beings in human-centered organizations. And so long as organizations want to interact with customers and people that they deal with, they're going to have to have strong experience and human experience inside organizations. And I think there's been this humanizing, empathetic, connecting, engaging effect from COVID. In fact, Manisha does say that probably the engagement stats in work are probably higher in 2020 than they have been for years because people have engaged with work in a way that they probably haven't had to before. You know, it's been a difficult year to kind of cruise through, hasn't it, really, when you think about it. And this idea of the purpose-driven organizations. I think we can kind of feel, I certainly do, talking to many organizations, they've sort of found that their mission and vision statements this year have turned out to not just be words on a page, but actually a lot more part of the DNA of the organization than they were expecting. So now for the episode. I'm delighted to be joined today um, by two guests with i think really distinctive and and interesting perspectives on the the topic of the day which is this uh, decade of courage manifesto um I'm joined by James Robertson. James is one of the earliest starters in the field of uh, the digital world of work. For almost 24 years, he's run Step 2, a very well-known Australian-based consultancy that focuses entirely on intranets and the digital workplace. He's written three books on intranets and is now leading the global movement around digital employee experience. And James is joining us from Sydney today, which is great. And my other guest is Manisha Singh. And just for everybody's um, kind of context, Manisha, could you just describe your role and what you're responsible for at, at Schneider Electric? So at Schneider Electric, I'm leading the, the digital HR transformation, where my responsibility includes uh, thinking about the employee experience of the future and how we can bring various components of, of tools, technologies uh, together to ensure, uh, you know, what that employee experience of future could be. We are also using power of data. So I also lead the people analytics part of the equation. Uh, and as you know, digital is a continuously evolving field. And that's why in your manifesto caught in action, like, you know, there's not, there isn't a stated way in which we could go on this journey. We all have to explore 
and have courage to test, experiment, and keep moving. So uh, another part of my role is to look at this AI robotics blockchain and how we can bring it purposefully rather than allowing it to just uh, just come, you know, one initiative at a time. So so that that's my role at Schneider. Good and um, great to to have you here. Um, so um, question to to start us off, um, and and the kind of background to this is that um, when COVID was sort of arriving in our lives i started kind of reflecting on what this meant for work and i think it's still uh no pun intended work in progress but the the, the, the what started off as a blog post became a kind of playbook became a uh, eventually became a manifesto i set a policy around what was happening to the the world of work and and the subtitle for this was 12 action points for essential workplace transformation. And I just wondered from each of you, what does it mean in your view when the digital workplace becomes what the manifesto at least calls the essential workplace? And um, Manisha, would you like to, to start with your reflections on that? You know, what COVID has done is it, it has acted as catalyst to massively accelerate the the digital workplace agenda. And last 15 years in various formats or roles uh, in people's strategy or now more closely employee experience, we've been championing uh, the creation of digital workplace, uh, reimagining how people would work in virtual teams right from the days of SharePoint uh, to now in the, in the era of Microsoft Teams or G Suite. And here comes COVID and overnight, the work had to move from physical to only digital. And, and so there was no no more questions on how, what, and a business case, we had to overnight create this infrastructure bandwidth, access, resources to ensure that people can can work digitally. It's really been a transformation which was which was in making, but COVID really made made it real. And digital is now now the real place where the work happens. Physical is not available yet in many countries, while while in China we are, we are becoming normal. And it, it essential it, it's essential now, right? It's not the the nice to have. Great, thank you. And and James, I mean, what's what are your thoughts around this this uh, question of of the digital workplace going from? I don't know if it's a, a sort of nice to have, but but something that that people were kind of adopting and adapting to to this idea of it becoming the essential workplace. Well, I think Manisha put it I mean, really elegantly when she said that this is a thing that's been coming for a long time. I mean, Paul, you and I for a long time have been talking about how maybe, you know, we should take this, this digital thing seriously. Um, yeah, certainly in large organisations, but even in, in small ones. And I think, I think what COVID has shown is that, is that the, the digital experience for our employees uh, is both really easy, but also really hard. I mean, the really easy thing is that, well, actually, when it isn't optional, when it is essential, when it's necessary, that, well, actually, it does work. That 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 you can have meetings without being in person. You can collaborate together uh, across geographies. You can allow people to have the flexibility they need to to do. Um, what they have to in these difficult situations with digital tools to, to support them. But if that's the easy bit, I think it's also shown that this is also really hard in that, okay, so, you know, I've worked with a lot of organisations over the last six months that have rapidly pivoted to being everyone working from home only to discover that, well, you know, maybe the, the, the licences weren't available for people to connect or maybe when they actually have to connect through the networks that are available or through the security protocols that while in theory they could work from home, in practice there's a reason why they didn't before was because the tools are horrible and hard to use and the experience is really clunky and incomplete. And I think it really shows that if we're to do this well, 
and to do this in a sustainable way for what look could be quite some time, then we do need to look much more seriously and much more holistically at well, what is the digital workplace and the experience of the digital workplace that we're giving to staff? And that's exciting. Uh, I mean, I think that's what you know, fuels the conversations that, that we're going to have over you know, the, the next you know, half an hour, hour, is what do we need to do to make this work incredibly well for everyone? Yeah, and, and um, just kind of looking at the, the, the manifesto and the, the, the 12 points in that and... and uh, I was really uh, pleased to see the kind of comments that you both made about the manifesto and wanted to get you on the podcast as, as uh, to kind of speak about this. Um, I mean, what was it about the, the manifesto that, that caught your attention overall? Was it a sort of general thing or, or um, specific points? I, I still very vividly remember, Paul, um, that, you know, I was, it was, it was bedtime in US when, when it came into my feed and, I was just doing one last crawl before before going to bed, and 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 I and, and I caught you know like the manifesto, the decade of courage, and then I just opened it. I was, to be honest with you, I was thinking it will be a, a lot of uh, digital digital thing, but um, but you know as I as I read the twelve action points, and I I saw there was a good mix of um, how to make this digital workplace, the digital part of the experience. And then you had also talked about reimagining the organization as, as living organization, and how to uh, put leaders into this transformation. And I think there was third cluster of things that, you know, like your 12 actions spoke to me in three clusters. And there was third cluster on tremendous focus on, on rehumanizing this, this whole uh, shift to digital workplace. And, and it appeared very comprehensive to me. So I have to confess, I read all of it and... As last four and a half months, we've all been pivoting, like uh, James said, into more and more of uh, working from this digital workplace. Uh, some of us are working on new guidelines, policies, new ways of working, and what could, what components should we be looking at? And when 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 I went through your manifesto and twelve action points, I was like, yeah, you know, this looks like a very cohesive way of uh, you know having a work area the work streams to to look at if we want to make this trans transition really work for everybody's uh, well-being for organizational well-being and survival and and recovery and for for employee well-being and 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 regrowth yeah and for me it, it um i guess it's the it's the human aspects that that uh okay i guess have been driving me in the work that I've done over the last 20 years. Um, I mean, the, the bits of, of my job I enjoy the most is when I get to go out and spend time out at client sites with staff doing actual work. Uh, and that's the, that's the exciting thing. That's the motivating thing because you can see, well, humans uh, who are trying to do a great job um, you know, in whatever it is they're doing out in the front line or in the back office, but are often uh, held back by tools, um, but also I think to a certain extent are, are overlooked as humans. And I think, you know, this is something that, again, that Paul, you and I have, have talked about for a little while now, which is there's an ethical component to this, which says that, that ethically we should be giving, for example, um, the same equity of experience across roles within the organisation. And, and why should we be doing that? Because organisations are made of humans. And that really jumped out to me, that, that, um, you know, that empathy uh, for the individual, um, you know, alongside those bigger picture transformational things about the location and the, of work and, and the patterns of travel and all of that, but just bringing it back to the human, which is, which mm. is the heart of where I'm at. And this, this human piece, uh, James, and the ethical empathy that you're making is, is is really so important. Like even if you look at uh, if if you look at the crisis that we are in today, there have been extraordinary uh, effort by every individual in 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 our organisation to to keep Schneider going, to keep Schneider winning, to take our communities, customers along. 
and and while there's a tremendous digital piece uh, like um, James you were saying overnight more bandwidth more more VPN connections more you know voice uh, video conferencing um, tools and licenses but what has been the key differentiator is is all of these people really connecting one on one or one to many in a very unique way solving big problems so really human is at the center and technology can, can is an enabler mm. yeah no, and um i mean one of the things i'm sort of thinking about is that um and i think one of the reasons why i was attracted into the world of of technology and in, in work is thinking about it is it's actually a a disruptive change agent in work so if you think of organizations up until you know probably 20 years ago um the kind of way work happened was fairly kind of similar it hadn't changed fundamentally um and then technology came into the workplace um you know email systems and then the 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 arrival of the kind of the internet and then collaboration and then mobile technologies and all of these disruptive change systems of change and one of the things that's kind of fascinated me is that you know and we've all heard it you know for years and years saying to people um look you can you can you can work wherever you want to unless your work is delivering a physical uh, activity that can't be kind of portable um like a like a restaurant um then you know so you can actually distribute the work wherever you want and people endlessly saying no that's not us you know we don't work like that you know we really value our, our kind of physical proximity with each other etc etc and then through the crisis people have been forced to see whether it's possible to work in a what i'd call fully distributed way um and actually they discovered wow we can it does work it's not perfect but it does work productivity's gone up um uh, the organization's discovered and doesn't want to go back to where it was and i wonder kind of why does why does it take a complete a crisis like this to 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 make allow people to make this sort of deep level cultural change in the way that that work happens and if and if they can make this change what other changes might be possible um that's really quite a tif- tough question i don't know if either of you want to try and respond I mean, to I, it i i guess i i would challenge what you've just said to some degree paul to say that that actually in a lot of organisations, quite a lot of people have already been been working away from the office um, and have already been working remote from other folks. Uh, and yet actually they've been really poorly served up to this point. Um, so it's really interesting. It's only when, when us white-collar workers are suddenly disrupted that maybe we gain a greater empathy for some of the you know frontline and field workers the blue collar workers uh that actually have been rather poorly served um so i i got to spend time talking with carers out in the community looking after people with um disabilities and aged people uh, and their experience um you know is terrible you know, that yes, they have mobile phones, but they don't have internet access. They can't manage their rosters. Uh, all of their policies and procedures are, are printed paper in the boot of the car. So I think there's that William Gibson quote apply here, that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And that, I think, for me, is kind of the exciting thing in that this disruption to us white-collar workers is now actually shining a light on the whole organisation to say, well, actually, maybe we do need to support everyone better now than we have in the past with these digital tools. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that sort of reminds me of the, the, the tenth of the action points, which actually the, the, the manifesto went through a various 
di- different um, iterations and um, one of them it, it didn't have it, it started off as 10 points and then through feedback it ended up as 12 points and one of the ones that got added in was to saturate the front line with the most advanced technology and services possible enabling and supporting and empowering this essential first line workforce of your organization getting exactly into what you've been saying mm, james and, and and manish Misha, is in, inside Schneider, um, do you feel that is something that you as an organisation have done historically or are doing or plan to do, you know, getting the best technology out to the front line of the organisation? That's a powerful um, call of action in the manifesto, you know, which was uh, really eluding. Um, I would say that pre-COVID also, because of digital transformation and the pressure of automation, we were already imagining the role that Frontline is going to play in, in helping create solutions which our customers need. So, so there was a, there was an awareness and there was a, there was an effort in, in trying to bridge the digital divide, as you call it, Paul, in your manifesto, uh, between the Frontline and, and the higher, um, elites in the organization in terms of giving them uh, coherent and, and, you know, uh, employed experience tools through which they can do their jobs really well. Uh, but COVID really accelerated it. For example, our customer customer service centers, you know, they had to shift overnight, sometimes at, in some countries at notice of 48 hours shelter at home. Um, to virtual way of working. Now, those were the people who already had started to get some advanced uh, tools, but then we had to really accelerate it. So I would say just like the rest of the world, Schneider was already uh, good in terms of your first question. You know, it's a pretty federated global organization. We have multi-hub strategy where we have global three global headquarters and our uh, leaders are are distributed. So we, uh, uh, quite a significant portion of organization was used to working remotely and, and working with flexibility. But, uh, we are, we are taking that to frontline at, at, you know, at, at a pace that was desired only now. So COVID has helped a lot. Yeah, and um, just kind of looking at the the, the action points, um, I mean, are there particular ones, James, that you feel are are the most important, and do you see any kind of prioritization in your mind? Uh, I think. Look, I think it's a a couple of things that that Manisha has, has touched upon. I mean, I definitely do see that that there is. Uh, an importance of recognising that, particularly in larger organisations like uh, Schneider, but but others, and even in smaller ones, um, you know, we've kind of, some organisations kind of kidded themselves that that they operated just within one or two two buildings, but that's never really been the case. And so, I think there is something really important from the top down to say, let's work in that more federated model let's push out decision making let's empower the organization uh, and all levels in it to to take action in a more flexible way uh, so i think that is that is crucial and you know and the leader behavior and stuff that goes with that um, i do think also from the bottom up there is um that question that you, you pull out in the manifesto about digital literacy something that seemed really dorky you know, this is the this is the thing that you taught your your parents how to use a, a phone. And that was what you know, digital literacy mm. was was teaching them how to turn on a computer. But the digital tools we've got now are, are immensely more powerful, but complex and not magically used in effective ways. And so I think there is a there has to be a a tenfold focus on digital literacy at a, at a much deeper way um, in a sort of direction that Elizabeth Marsh um, has been looking at for some time. And I think um, there's a lot of, of insight to be gained from her on this. And, and Manisha, um, are the particular um, points that really you think are the most important out of the 12 and, and, and any kind of prioritization in that? Uh, so this is my... Um 
time to share you know why i fell in love with uh, digital and technology and i started to become more and more advocate of uh, digital transformation if, if you look at my career i started as organization development uh, you know a lot of passion for organization development and enabling uh, you know a, a kind of Paul, what you call living organization, that if you want to, to drive a change or if you want to create a winning organization, a high growth organization, which which is a precondition to unleash the tremendous potential and hope with which every employee joins a corporate, uh, you really need to, to have you know, a, a system which is more living, which allows people to thrive. So, a digital had had that power to enable those conditions, and, and that's why I started to become advocate. So um, when I look at your manifesto and 12 action points, uh, more than prioritization, I think there, like I said, uh, two, three clusters are there. While there is tremendous focus on, on this whole digital as enabler, you know, digital workplace as essential workplace, I think the two other clusters that you bring, um, they need to be fine balanced in taking it along if we have to harness the power of the shift that COVID is uh, kind of enabling for all of us to be in. So the reimagining arc piece where flatter organization, leaders leading uh, from their digital presence, their behavior, um, and, and then uh, the last bucket of, uh, you know, hyperhuman. And, and you say this uh, very well, Paul, when you say, uh, we need to manage this hyper-digital, hyper-human, and, and I would say we add the organization angle and, and take it along. Um, there is one that if I have to pick up one, I would say human, uh, you know, human at the center piece, uh, because this is one piece that, uh, you know, we are all still unraveling. While we do at a feeling level or at a thinking level, we know that that's the right thing to do, more ethical way of uh, evolving digital. But then how how do you incorporate that into your actions and, and, and workforce plan and strategy so that it really becomes, um, you know, it, it, it really becomes true as we move along? Mm. And one of, the, one of the questions I've sort of been wrestling with a little bit is we're seeing this acceleration of automation robotics ai um and i kind of felt until the beginning of this year fairly confident that the the human-centric organization working alongside technology was the way that we would evolve and i i i think i i've kind of believe that's where we will go eventually but i think there's quite a lot of pressure now um coming from technology to replace more human beings. And I interviewed um, somebody on our 24-hour thing last year called Andrew Yang, who at that time was a U.S. presidential candidate, and he'd stood all on the basis of universal basic income around trying to protect the U.S. workforce from being automated out of, uh, out of work. Um, I mean, what's your kind of feeling about that? How? So let's say you're um, a financial services organization and you're faced with questions around people or technology. How do you ensure that you, you keep it as a human-centered organization when, if you like, the spreadsheets might suggest, well, we can introduce technology, robotics, AI here, and actually get rid of another sway the people uh, how do you kind of balance that sort of ethical question as you as you brought it up before james well, I, I think it um it can come down to something really simple and really pragmatic which says that that the quality of your customer experience is in reality limited by the quality of your employee experience uh, and obviously the digital employee experience, since the digital bit is the thing that, that we're all mostly responsible for. Because the, the reality is that, that if you ring up your bank and talk to the, someone in the call centre and you ring them up three times, then chances are you will get three different answers. 
Now you could say, okay, well, look, we're going to replace the human that you've been talking to uh, by a bot. Uh, but it turns out that banking's rather complex and that maybe the bot takes longer to train than the humans. And so instead, maybe what we should be saying to Manisha's point, if, if um, call centres are the front face out into to the land of customers, then maybe we need to be thinking more about how do we support the humans and in particular, how do we digitally support uh, those humans that provide the customer experience? And so... We know that organisations care about customer experience. We've, we've now learnt that lesson. We're not always ideally great at doing it from organisation to organisation, but we know that's inescapable. So I think when we do that, we focus on customers that actually will end up for, uh, forcing us to focus on employees and not just the tools that sit within the organisation that may or may not automate stuff. Mm. Okay, that sounds good. And um, uh, Manisha, any any kind of thoughts that you've got around this um, this point around keeping your organisation as human centred and not technology centred as possible? And this this is a question that, that I spend quite quite a lot of time um, thinking, pondering, wading through the research uh, and and the viewpoints available. And at, at one end, like James said, there could be a there there has to be a pragmatic and and, and a simple approach to solve it uh, under the umbrella of some guidelines. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, businesses are rethinking digital and COVID added complexity to which customer segments are going to grow, what part of my business is going to grow. So, what are the jobs to be done in future, and how these jobs will be done? What skills will become more relevant and, and how do I upskill people or help them reskill into those growing domains, uh, versus, versus the one that will be getting left behind? So in your example of financial services, there were retailers, tellers in the bank. And as, as the digitization happened, the first wave of digitization, people thought their jobs would go. But then they became a relationship manager. And as now, like I, I remember reading about a, a financial services firm, as they transitioned into COVID, they had to, to convert their relationship managers into consultant, you know, uh, consulting um, customers on complex uh, financial solutions. So, so these, tra- these role transition or transformations will need to be thought and uh, proactively, you know, uh, kind of uh, waded through as we are creating digital transformation model for, for we need to think about what will be the human model uh, simultaneous. And um, lastly, like James said, we need to think about augmenting. So in the new trans- new way of working for our business for XYZ function, how can we augment humans to to help that our businesses grow, but at the same time, uh, you know, this, this whole human piece is taken care of. And I think if I if I followed on from that, I mean, I, I think, Manisha, what you've highlighted is um, why we need a diversity of voices in this discussion. And this is one of, I guess, the, the challenges I've, I've thrown down to the community, which is to say, okay, this time round... We need to have more people involved in this discussion than the, the usual suspects of before, which is the former you know, IT folk, the intranet folk, maybe even the internal comms folk. But actually, these conversations are meaningless without that HR view right, that, that you expressed, Manisha, um, you know, and the, the um, physical workplace view um, that, Paul, that you capture so effectively in the manifesto. Because unless we take a, a truly multidisciplinary approach to this, and, and genuinely this time around, I don't think we're going to make any more progress than the, than the last couple of tries at this. Because this is, a, this is a really holistic set of questions, and I don't think any of us have all the answers. So how are we going to work together um, as thinkers and doers to really shape well, how do we want to be working 
and how do we want people to be working uh, within our organisations of today and tomorrow? I, I think this is uh, a year that I've never experienced in work. I don't think I've ever had, I, I don't think I've ever been working during a period where there's been so much intensity of work transformation and change happening it almost feels to me like we've we've kind of crossed a river and uh, you know you, you always feel i mean somebody said to me uh 2020 feels like the future arrived early um and and with all the kind of challenges and intensity of that but it feels like we've now kind of on the other side of a river that we kind of knew was coming. This this sense that that work was going to be liberated from from certain kind of constraints that it's always been in, kind of cultural norms, habits, and and now we're in a sort of different kind of geography. And I think organisations, quite understandably, are still sort of reeling from it, trying to adjust to it, get their heads around what feels like a several year kind of process i think there was a sense at the beginning maybe the kind of covid would be something that we'd experience and then kind of move through but actually i think we all know the world we're in now is is fundamentally different and i'm just kind of wondering what what that what that means because i think one of these weird kind of things that i've noticed with 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 the virus the virus effect on organizations is we sort of know how the virus affects human bodies, but but it, but it also affects organisations and reveals, if you like, the the system, health, immunity, agility, flexibility, um, resilience, all of these kind of qualities. Um, and there was a fascinating thing said to me by uh, somebody from a. Uh, from Saab yesterday was which was that if you look at the sectors that have been in the economy that are really being damaged through through the virus there that in their, in this person's view they were sectors that were already dying it's just been accelerated so you could argue about about physical retailing um, business air travel uh, maybe Maybe the idea of leisure tourism in an in an in in environmentally um, conscious world. I look at the way I've travelled throughout my life without even really paying much attention to its impact. And has the virus sort of accelerated some industries? Uh, um, you know, the kind of how they function. Um, not sure if that kind of rather rambling sort of. Uh, kind of statement provokes any thoughts on, from either of you? I think, um, look, I, I agree with all of all of that, and we are going to see massive structural changes. Um, what's interesting, though, is that that there's some industries that have been massively hit that, well, we hope are not dying. So, so if I go back, I guess to to, to well, last year for me, I spent some time in aged care homes again as, as part of work um, pre-COVID, um, and as we know, I mean, aged care homes have been slammed by the virus, uh, and and a huge proportion, disproportion of, of deaths have happened within the aged care homes, and so this is this is a sector under massive pressure right now. Uh, and I would argue that that actually it's a sector that just wasn't sufficiently thought out from a digital perspective amongst other issues uh, because they've not had the resilience, to your point, uh, Paul, that they've needed to have um, in that, you know, when I went off and, and talked with people, you know, the nurses in aged care homes, you know, they had clunky systems that, that, that gave them 100-page clinical patient records that they were required to read at the start of every shift. But if they had 20 uh, patients that they were looking after, then in, somehow they're supposed to read 2,000 pages of, of, of poorly formatted stuff that they're using cordless phones to communicate and that there's a buzzer that, 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 that the... Uh, patient presses if they want a glass of water or if they're having a fit 
Now, in that environment, when we helped them talk about what does a day in the life look like in the future, some of them said being paid on time. And so, so it's just this extraordinary environment in which they have been rather forgotten and, and thus when this is hit, then now they're really struggling. And so, so I think there are some areas that, that COVID has shone a light on that says, actually, these industries we can't have die and that digital is going to be a part, but an important part of keeping them functioning in the way that they need to be in these time, really difficult times. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and by the way, just to kind of um, uh, explain, I certainly didn't mean no. all of uh, you know, <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> because um, aged care homes is a is a place I've um, spent quite a bit of time, um, um, and actually, when you when you talk about it, because my my mum uh, was ninety eight, uh, she died six weeks ago um, in in her care home. And actually, uh, when I think about it, I used to jokingly say to her when, when, I, when I was visiting, there was always a buzzer going off somewhere because somebody had pulled some buzzer somewhere. And it was just like this constant sort of beat and the technology and the infrastructure. I mean, the, the staff are incredible and, and the job they're doing. And I think whatever you can do, James, to kind of bring that, that um uh, world into a digital age, I think, would be uh, fantastic. Um, um, Manisha, does that kind of spark any any thoughts or, or stories from from your kind of what you've noticed in the last few months? Because I think we've all kind of noticed examples and stories, maybe from our own organisations or worlds around us, that have really brought home the maybe that, as, as James was saying, the deficiency of technology or the power of technology. So, so there are many, um, many stories, but the one that's coming to my mind is even as Schneider, um, you know, we, we are into providing access to energy and automation of energy. So many of our services, like, you know, enabling data centers and all, were identified as critical or essential services. Um, and what we have seen is the appetite in our customers to 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 kind of go digital on, on the energy management, multi-location um, entities have gone tremendously, significantly up. While um, so, so at one side, the story is really they want to accelerate digital at much faster pace. They want to adopt smart factories and things like that. But at the other side, um, there are some customer segments which are which are really, uh, you know, kind of um, low in terms of like travel. You talked about airline, oil and gas. Some of these are are suffering, and and we don't know uh, one which which was ambiguous, which was growing pre-COVID and has hit hard by COVID is is the commercial real estate. Uh, you know, it, it was growing. Everybody, I think uh, the world was going round on that, that, uh, you know, uh, from remote working to co-location, there was not enough uh, point of uh, justification. And then now suddenly commercial real estate is, is everybody, because from Google to Facebook to Twitter to Schneider to Siemens, everybody's talking about how much a physical space is really needed. So. So, so there is, um, there are all kind of examples out there, and I think uh, it, as as somebody said, it's extraordinary time, intense year, and um, right from leaders to the last employee in the organization, everybody has to figure out what what is my role going to be in this situation to help first help my company survive, and, and then kind of you know reimagine what that new growth path will be and then how how do we help accelerate that mm. yeah i mean and i think the the uh, the looking through the the kind of action points in the in the manifesto i think um the ones that really kind of grab me as is well, particularly the, the eighth one, which is about reimagining and redesigning organizations from machines to living systems, from organization to organism. And I'm off for a, 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 a writing retreat for a couple of days to finish off the book that my myself and my colleague Shimrit James have got coming out um, 
shortly called The Nature of Work, Work as a Living System. Um, and I think that the way that organisations, I think one of the things we're going to discover is that the way that organisations are structured um, doesn't work in a living in a living age and I think that was one's important and the other one that I think is is really interesting is this experience that leadership have had of accelerated decision making through the crisis where the decision making and the leadership got connected back into the front line and it's really kind of struck me how liberating that that leaders have found that experience and how much they don't want to to lose it. Um, so a question for you both is, is what do you feel has been left out of the manifesto that, that, that um, deserves to be included? Because I'm, I'm, it's certainly not comprehensive. I guess um, for me, it, it probably just comes back to that word experience. Um, and just uh, that sense also of, of the lived experience. Um, because I think that there is... So, for example, you know, it's one thing to say that we're going to saturate the front line with the most advanced technology and services possible, but that's a very functional view. Uh, and it's not wrong, but I think it's missing a trick um, because I think what we should be saying is we should be providing the best possible digital experiences to our frontline staff because that is a much bigger view that says that yeah, no kidding, we should be giving them the best tools because actually they're the most important staff, no question about it. But it's how we deliver them and actually how they work together because it turns out that that getting Office 365 will, and Workplace by Facebook or, and Workday or, and we've got corners of Slack and bits of Salesforce that actually getting more technology, which is what we've madly been doing over the last five mm. years, is not inherently better than less. So there's a degree of how does this work, but then there's that human component bringing it back to, to what Manisha has really been talking about. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's, that's what I would challenge you to do is maybe to put a, a 13th thing in um, around the digital experience. <laughs> yeah, I think I just want to rewrite number 10 now. You're so, it's so much better that. It's like saturating the front line could feel like drowning the front line in mm. the most advanced technology so they don't know which way's up. <laughs> that, that's which great. is not what yeah. you had in mind, of um, course. <clears throat> no, no. I, that's, uh, and, and Manisha, uh, what, what would you feel you'd, you'd like to include? So I, I, as I shared when I first read it, Paul, and I think still remains very important. When I when I think about employee experience, and I've been on this journey for for 15 years, right, from from the internet on SharePoint days to now, um, you know, the comprehensive one employee experience. When I think about that, it's really um, it's really meaningful work, meaningful relationships, and and giving employees voice and agency back. So so voice and agency is the point that I, I shared with you in my comment. And I think uh, when you're talking about living organization, empowered frontline and, and leaders with the presence, it's important to talk about also how do we give employees more voice and agency to, to drive this whole transformation decide how how the future be done could be made human um, could be made more human at the same time as as they help organization win win in the marketplace uh, give them more voice and agency to decide uh, you know in this complexity of tools that James was mentioning what is the right combination and what really they need to do their jobs better rather than you know just because we are a microsoft shop or we are a g suite shop or we have a salesforce and that we actually uh, burden them because um, mind you frontline employees are are also the one who are doing most of the work and then they have burden of kind of learning and, and working on these tools which instead of enabling them becomes an additional one day job on top of already a a productive day that we expect. So to me, voice and agency, you know, in, in a sense, um, last two decades, there's been, a, if you see employee engagement stats for that uh, matter, you know, since the day I entered HR in 2003 to now, you know, the most engaged 
if we just leave the COVID time, I think COVID time engagement have have shot up a bit, and and only in a one year or two year we will come to know whether it was a temporary phenomena driven out of uh, you know the whole sense of survival, or it, it's really a new thing that we're seeing. So if we leave the COVID out, employee engagements, the, the discretionary efforts have stagnated to 32 percent or or 30 percent, 35 percent. A world over, you know, no matter which geography you pick up. So there's been the sense of uh, powerlessness, or I call learned helplessness, that employees in, in big, massive organizations have come to acquire, saying, you know, we are just cogging the wheel, and, and the change is really driven from somewhere else. And um, in, in many, many transformations that I've been part of, because digital is a new force which is forcing us to transform, that, but in past there have been globalization or some other forces which were kind of, you know, um, asking organizations to change. But in these transformation, what I have learned is the, it's not the best led strategy uh, made by McKinsey or Bain. It's not really the best led tools or only the most uh, superstar kind of leaders which matter. What matters is how much empowered employees felt they were to partner, collaborate, and and harness that collective intelligence that led to the change that organization wanted to do. And it's the same situation today. So voice and agency, Paul. But isn't that lovely? I mean, I'm voice and agency. I've just madly scribbled down on a piece of, of paper. That's my takeaway for the for for, for the <laughs> evening for me because I think I think yeah. you know, most of our infections in Australia uh, from COVID came from the Ruby Princess, which I think most people have heard of the the ill-fated um, uh, cruise uh, liner, because everyone was let off um, without actually testing them. And, and it, they've just gone through a whole, whole, whole inquiry around this. And there must have been 100, 200, 300 people involved across multiple organisations. And to Manisha's point, that, that idea of learned helplessness, well, this seems like a bad idea to be letting them off. <laughs> but I'm just a cog in a wheel in a huge machine. I'm sure someone else knows what they're doing. It'll mm. all be OK. And you think, should not yeah. have many people had that voice and agency to go, actually, I'm just going to flag. This seems like a stupid idea. Maybe we need to keep them on the ship. Mm. So, yes, beautifully put, Manisha. Yeah, and I think when you start to think of in, in this sort of living system, living organisation way about that, you know, um, in a way, all, all parts of a living system come with their own intelligence and agency. And... Um, rather than being a cog in a machine and you might feel like quite a small cog in a machine and therefore, you know, why does what I think or what, why does what I do matter? It's interesting. So just to, um, as we come towards the end, um, so I called this the, the Decade of Courage Manifesto um, and for better or for worse, um, towards the end of last year, I said, this is going to be the decade of courage. We're going to need courage and we're going to need to encourage ourselves, encourage each other, I think is really important. And I, I wonder for each of you, what does courage look like in work? Because I think it's a really important um, and unkind of used resource. Uh, I can uh, go. Courage, um, courage to me... Uh Courage really is to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. Um, courage, courage really means to 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 kind of you know also depend on partners and this collective intelligence. This word I have started to use a lot more and a lot more responsibly um, to to create this collective intelligence ecosystem within organization and even outside the boundary of organization. And and Paul, you've been part of my collective intelligence um, network that, that I learn a lot. So, you know, in each one of our roles, how do we create this and, and we pivot and courage to create quite a few experiments, maybe contradictory to each other. Um, and, and, and that too with limited resources and agility. So all, all three things that I'm saying is, is not practical in the corporate world. You're saying, uh, you know, that I, I want to, let's say, let's take the frontline salesperson. I want to create two groups. To one group, I want to give 
all this combination of tools to, to other group. I just want to give one tool and, and then see how it's coming. And I want to do all of this when I am in COVID environment, I have limited resources and I want to make fast decisions. So, so courage is how do we take take all of this? And lastly, how to kill what's not working, accept failure and, and move on quickly, no matter how much we love it. That's great. Thank you. And um, James, what, what does uh, courage look like to you in work yeah look uh, i mean i think those are all really important points um and, and so i guess I, I would just supplement them uh by saying i think we need to collectively and individually take the courage to deliver what i would call 100 percent solutions um so rather than kind of a lot of 80 or pragmatically actually only 50 percent solutions that is there was a need within the organisation and we delivered a tool that was kind of okay and we gave a bit of training about how to use the tool but not necessarily why. Uh, and we didn't really take any extra effort to design the tool or actually to spend the time with the people we were inflicting this tool on to really understand what they needed. And so this, I think there's this, for me, there's this idea that if we're going to take a more purpose-driven approach, which I think this, this manifesto is very much a, an example of, that if we take a more purpose-driven approach, then we have to take the courage to actually deliver the outcomes we are saying need to be delivered. That if we are going to help the front line, then let's properly do that. If we are going to support knowledge workers, then let's really do that. Uh, and so that's, I think, the courage to go beyond the minimal um, to the best possible answer we can give to Manisha's point, recognising, of course, that we don't have all the answers now, but we can certainly, I think, try harder than we have in the past. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And um, anything you'd just like to add before we, we bring things to a close, Manisha? Uh, I think I loved uh, what James said, you know, the purpose-driven purpose, purpose -driven approach and how how do we cultivate that sense of purpose in, in everything that we do. And I also love, James, what you said, uh, beyond normal to, to what's best possible. And you, you said it very simply, but so important that let's really do it. So, so all those things... Uh, are very simple, but let's let at leadership level let's get intentional about you know really navigating through this this time and even after that in a in a very purposeful way, keeping humans at the center. Uh, COVID has seen a lot of you know the, the positive part of COVID is just tremendous trust in the organization. There's tremendous resilience and and. Um, collective sense of being which has which has emerged you know by going through the shared difficult experience now how do we how do we retain the good of it and, and use it to to navigate the the digital transformation world in a meaningful way james yeah final reflections look i i, I do think um, you know, to Manisha's point, I mean, there are absolutely positives to come out of this experience. And maybe one of them is that maybe it's helped us, you know, the three of us and our colleagues, um, professionals in this space, maybe it's helped us find something that, that senior leaders can really care about. And, and, I, and I say that kind of glibly, um, but, you know, I've written three books on intranets, but do senior leaders care about intranets? No. But do they care about Office 365 and the digital workplace? Well, some do, don't get me wrong, but largely no. Now, but do they care about um, you know, the digital experience of staff? Do they care about the issues that you're raising this manifesto? Then, well, yeah. Actually, I think they... They either do or can. And so I think this does give us a new way over the coming year and years and obviously decade um, to connect better with our senior leaders and to provide them something stronger or more meaningful that they can rally around. And I think that's exciting. Mm, great. Thank you. 
and and I'm going to conclude with a sort of uh, uh, call out to anybody listening to this who's got the uh, who's part of an organisation who can contribute to this. I think there's a real um, tremendous opportunity that James has outlined um, uh, in 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 care homes for technology that really would support the people living there and the people doing incredible work caring for those people um wouldn't it be wonderful to have them served with really incredible technology and it's a huge business opportunity and a huge need so that's a sort of entrepreneurial shout out to anybody who's got the resources uh, will to kind of do that. Um, I can imagine what it would look like without knowing it in detail. So thank you so much, um, Manisha and James, for, for, for joining um, from different parts of the world and uh, different time zones. And yeah, it's given me courage. It's encouraged me. And, um, and uh, it's been a delight talking to you both pleasure has been mine thank you paul for being an evangelist in the space and uh, you know and then thinking ahead on behalf of all of us thank you digital workplace impact is brought to you by the digital workplace group dwg is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership benchmarking and boutique consulting services for more information visit digitalworkplacegroup.com This is a really holistic set of questions and I don't think any of us have all the answers. So how are we going to work together um, as thinkers and doers to really shape well, how do we want to be working and how do we want people to be working uh, within our organisations of today and tomorrow?